The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Today is the day that we've set aside in the course of our church calendar to honor what the Lord has done and to let you know about the way he's leading us in the future. This is our annual celebration Sunday. And in reference on this reference to the Sunday, I was thinking of something I could preach on that would gather our thoughts for what we really want to be about and um, had a long talk with uh, my good friend and colleague, Bob Taylor, and uh, he um, encouraged me to go back 18 months. Uh, 18 months ago, 19 months ago, uh, I was so honored and privileged uh, by the Lord to be um, given the, the opportunity to serve as your, as your pastor. And on that first Sunday, I preached what I perceived then and now as really the most important text in pastoral ministry. It was the the text I preached last when I left Grace Community Church, the text I preached first when I got here, and it's the one we're going to return to today, and I have every confidence this will not be our last journey through this passage. Uh, In my estimation, there is no more important verse for pastoral ministry and nothing more important to a Christian than the truth contained in this verse. In fact, you can say it this way. This verse contains the most important thing in Christianity. It's quite a statement, isn't it? See if you can pick it out when we read 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Paul says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You see it? It's unmistakable, isn't it? John Knox is one of my historical heroes. I've been so blessed by the Lord to be able to stand where John Knox has preached and where John Knox is buried. He's actually buried in a parking lot outside of a church in his grave is only marked by a gold dot. That's how much Scotland looks back at the revered John Knox. 400 years ago, he rocked Scotland, leveled the thinking of spiritual Scotland by his powerful gospel preaching and the exclusivity of Christ alone in reference to the horrific theologies that were being propagated from the Catholic Church by Mary, Queen of Scots, from the throne of Scotland. It was said that Knox feared no one. It's quite a statement, isn't it? No one was known to solicit fear in the heart of John Knox. He was debating Mary, Queen of Scots, about uh, the impotency of of the Catholic view of salvation and the addition of works to the finished work of Christ. And he was told by her courtiers that his language was discourteous, disrespectful, not honoring to the Queen of Scotland. At one point, she burst into tears and ran out of the room when he said, it is no more privilege of the rich and powerful than of the common man to offend God's majesty. Her attendants 
charged him with upsetting the queen and asked him to stop preaching the Protestant gospel. The salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He refused. He said, I cannot let the tears of my honorable lady suppress the voice of my conscience or silence me to the hurt of my nations. Quite, quite a statement. Mary was keenly aware of Knox's prayers against her daily, called imprecatory prayers, praying against her, either that she would be saved or removed from the throne. And she said this to her attendants, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than I fear all the assembled armies of Europe. At his funeral, John Knox's funeral, Earl Morton, who was no friend of Knox, pointed to his grave and said, there lies a man who never feared the face of any man. Quite a statement. Quite a eulogy. Parking space 23 where cars park over his grave every day. Now, I'm not sure we should honor people after death, but to put a man like this under a parking lot bothers me. Knox's bravery was epic, but it was just a a dim echo of the bravery of the Apostle Paul. Have you really studied the bravery of the Apostle and what he did and what he stood for? He proclaimed the gospel in hostile synagogues, preached it in open Gentile marketplaces, He debated on the Areopagus of Athens. He evangelized before the intimidating council of Jerusalem that had the power to kill him and sentence him, which they did, but he appealed to Rome and ended up dying in Rome. He'd been beaten so bad at Derby and Lystra that he was taken out of the city, dumped in a ditch, and left for dead. He was before Felix and Agrippa, and he stood for the gospel. Even to the Roman guards, while holding him at sword point, he was faithful to tell them that they could be saved from their sins. In Acts chapter 20, he told the Ephesian elders at the meeting at Miletus that the Holy Spirit had promised him, get this, everywhere you go, Paul, every city you evangelize, every place you minister, I promise you this. This is God speaking. I promise you, you will receive chains and beatings and ultimately death. Quite a ministry to be called to, wouldn't you think? I love how they were looking for Paul in Acts chapter 17, door to door, and they finally come to Jason's house. They pound on Jason's door, and they said, where is this man who has upset the world? We all know Paul, his bravery, would eventually land him putting his precious faithful head on an anvil and having Nero sever it from his body in Rome. When Paul was born, the Roman Empire was fully entrenched in heathenism. When Paul died, the world had been shaken by the gospel because of this man. Paul was fearless. And yet, when we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 11... Verse 3, Paul says, I am afraid. Knowing what you know about Paul, for him to say, I'm afraid, ought to stop the presses, pull the car over, turn the TV off. What in the world would make the apostle Paul, this brave of heart and faithful of soul, 
preacher, an evangelist, a missionary, what would make him afraid? He tells you right here, I'm afraid that the people under the gospel power and under my pastoral care would have their hearts tricked and deceived and be moving away from having Jesus Christ as their exclusive and as their soul and as their only hope and priority. I can think of no better articulation of pastoral concern, no better articulation of the most important thing in Christianity, no more penetrating description of the most valuable thing in life than this verse. It's the person of Christ. It's Jesus. This fearless, audacious, missionary, bold pastor, ferocious theologian was afraid of seeing people deprioritize Christ. He was afraid of seeing people who he had evangelized let Jesus become a part of their life and not the point of their lives. Isn't it fair to say that that's easily our temptation? Not in life, not this year, not in general, but moment by moment as we think through our our days, as we think through our conversations, as we think through our moment by moment thought processes and decision making, is Christ our priority? Let's back up from that a second. If Jesus Christ is who he says he was, and we believe that here, don't we? If he did what he said he did, what the Bible says he did, and we believe that here, don't we? If he rose from the grave and is alive today, that is the ultimate game changer. There is nothing more important to set the trajectory of life, nothing more magnetic to the compass of our direction than the fact that he has resurrected from the dead a real man, fully God, truly human, alive at the right hand of God, who now offers us intercession daily, who never has a thought of anything but us, and yet we just let him be a part of our lives. That's what Paul was afraid of. I'm afraid you're going to be distracted. I'm afraid you're going to be tempted to look other places to the point of your life than Christ. Now, let's just for a second level the field. This is not that person next to you or the person up there or back there. This is all of us, and it's a battle daily. Paul, the genius of the Holy Spirit, Paul said this in a context in 2 Corinthians that that the Holy Spirit would canonize and put in the Bible for all time for us to have true north for our lives. At our elders retreat uh, a few weeks back, we we came up with a list of things. I just wanted to talk about that for a second. Uh, Lists and lists of things that that were a priority for us to think through. One of our meetings went 12 hours. And um, I'm so encouraged by the men that God has called to lead us in this church. Uh, Unspeakable commitment. And in that, we went through a process, as a long process over a couple of days of trying to realize what is the Lord doing to lead us in having this next year be about what he wants and not us. We went through a long um, process. Some of you have been through this corporately called SWAT Strength, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. Let's look at everything we can related to our, our, uh, our church and what, what are the priorities for us to, to consider. 
have to confess that when we did this and these priorities began to align themselves, we listed them all out, and I went to bed on that Friday night. And when I was laying in bed, I was thanking God for the day, and I had physical, literal tears well up in my eyes because it was very obvious that the first priority after all these men went through all of this process corporately and individually was simply this, gospel application. That our main task for ourselves, our main task for our church is to make sure that we are seeking to have undistracted and unhindered devotion to Christ personally and that our church bears that signature that Christ is the point of our lives and not merely a part of our lives. That the gospel is what we're about. And so I want to tell you, we're going to talk more about this tonight. You are going to, you're going to think that your pastor and your elders have a, um, a repetitive distress disorder. You're going to hear over and over and over Is Christ central to this decision? Is Christ central to this direction? Is Christ central to this doctrine? Is Christ central to our church? Is Christ central to our problems? Or have we become distracted from pure, simple devotion to him? Now, what I want to do is talk about that, but we're going to climb through this verse, kind of work our way through it before we get to that end uh, crescendo. And when you do so, you find uh, Paul wrestling with ministries. A survey of Scripture will show you very clearly that Paul, the apostles, the Lord himself, was constantly in the battle against falsities, false teachers. In fact, there were false Christs in Matthew 24 and John, 1 John 2, false apostles in 2 Corinthians 11 and in Revelation 2, false prophets in Deuteronomy 13, Matthew 7, 2 Peter 2, 1 John 4, false evangelists in 2 Corinthians 11 and Acts 15 and Galatians 1, false teachers in 2 Peter 2, 1 Timothy 4, Jude 4, false pastors in Ezekiel 34, false elders in Acts 20, verse 30, false brethren, even false believers in Galatians 2 and in 2 Corinthians 11. Satan rarely tries to scare you into distraction. He wants to deceive you into distraction. He comes looking like an angel of Don't look for Satan in the R-rated scary movies of Hollywood. He laughs at us thinking that those are satanic. You know where Satan aims his ministry? Right here. He wants us to see that he's an angel of light. It's good rather than best. It's nice rather than holy. It's Christian rather than Christ-centered. So by this point in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul has been talking about false teachers, false professors. They've gained a strong foothold on that Peloponnesian isthmus where Corinth was located between uh, Sparta and down the Peloponnesus, this little sliver of land in upper mainland Greece. That's where Corinth was, the crossroads of the oceans, the crossroads of the land masses. He was dealing with a very strategic church and false teachers And Satan himself knew if they could get a hold of the church of Corinth, false teaching would spread north and south and throughout the seas. There's an interesting footnote there. Any church that's doing ministry biblically ought to watch out because that is the target of the enemy. He doesn't want us to be doing what we're doing today. Interestingly, this passage 
Paul expresses his concern for the disloyalty of his readers' minds, not the the, the readers' morals. I think that's important. It's it's important that we have holy lives. It's important that we uh, pursue holiness. It's important to pursue right living. But if that's done at the expense of or instead of dealing with the mind that generates those holy aspirations, we've missed the point. Paul deals with Christianity at its core, that your minds would be led astray, our thinking, our decision-making, mission control centrals. So what I want to do in this passage is look at it from a pastoral perspective and from a leadership and the elders' perspective, and then we're going to work our way to that most important element at the end of the verse. These are three theological applications of pastoral theology, if you want an outline. Three theological applications of pastoral theology. In other words, how, how should a pastor's view of the ministry, view of the gospel, view of himself, view of his, his sheep impact what he does, the priorities that he sets in place, how that plays out in short and long-term goals? The first application, theological application of pastoral theology is in the first phrase, a fearful ecclesiology. It's the big word for the doctrine of the church. A fearful ecclesiology. Paul says, I am afraid. We've already seen that. Now, in order to understand that, you've got to go back to verse 2. Paul says, I'm not only afraid, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a true virgin, as a pure virgin. My goal was to get you anchored in Christ not in the church, not in me, not in any of the leaders. He goes back in 1 Corinthians and in the first part of 2 Corinthians and says, you have cast your loyalty toward men. Appreciate the men who teach you, but have your lasting loyalty be in Christ, in the gospel. The imagery is of a father betrothing his daughter. The priority was to keep her pure and holy and to protect her virginity until the wedding Paul understood himself to be the spiritual father of these Corinthians. He had led them to Christ, and he wanted to present them to Christ. Deep emotional affection. And then he says, but I'm afraid. word uh, fear is in the Greek. Everyone knows this Greek word. Phobia means to be afraid, literally to put a horse to flight. It was used primarily in in the the, the common nomenclature of slapping a horse on its backside to get it going. You you scare it to flight. You scare it so it's moved. Paul had this phobia, this fear. He was spooked like an animal, a strong alarm. You might be interested to know that in the Greek, the word fear is the first word. Afraid! I am, he says. True Christian leadership must bring in some measure of fear and jealousy for the bride of Christ that he's given to their charge. I can tell you that the men who lead you have this fear and they have this jealousy. I am so honored and humbled not only to serve with them but to have them look after my soul um, I had, I'll just I'll tell you a little, little anecdote. This morning I had one of our elders come in and he said, hey, there's something I want to tell you about that's involved in your, in your life, in your ministry that I want you to be warned about and be fearful of. I'm so grateful for that. 
He also goes to a second theological implication or application of pastoral care in the middle of the verse, and that's a functional bibliology. We won't talk too much about this, but it's a functional bibliology, a working application and doctrine of the Bible. He says, I'm afraid that, then he says, as serpent, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, by his craftiness. Paul now uses the epic illustration of Adam and Eve that functions in two dimensions. First, it illustrates the point he's making. Eve was deceived. Don't be deceived like she was. But don't miss the fact that Paul takes the Genesis account literally. You see that? It's not myth. Adam wasn't representative of a, of a huge group of men who were first created by God. Eve wasn't representative of a huge group of women. He believed that Adam and Eve were literal historical figures who lived, tempted by a, ready for this? Are you ready? A real, live, talking snake. You believe in a real, live, talking serpent that existed in Genesis 3? And those first three chapters in Genesis, gang, if we, if you slip there, where do you begin believing? Can I affirm again that our leadership, I hope our church, I hope the direction of every believer under our pastoral care, we, we believe in the literal interpretation of those first three chapters of Genesis that God was actually powerful enough to create the whole world and universe in six days, get this, by divine fiat. You know what that means? By speaking. Universe exists. If he's that powerful, he could have done it in a nanosecond but chose six days. Why do we have trouble believing in six days? It's ridiculous. And better than that, if he did that in Genesis 1 and repeated with theological implications and especially highlighting the, uh, the creation of man in Genesis 2, then we have no trouble believing in this talking snake in Genesis 3 and the fall of man that infects every one of our lives to this day. You don't believe Genesis 1 or 2 or 3? Where will you turn on the... Switching your mind that says, well, now, now we're getting to the good stuff. Now it's real. You say, Rick, that's kind of being sarcastic. You bet it is. I wouldn't apologize to anyone for believing in those first three chapters. Paul believed in a talking snake. Not only a talking snake, a pretty smart one. Who was Satan himself embodied in a serpent. A serpent, by the way, at the time, which may not have been something that we recognize because the curse was to knock it flat on its belly. We don't know exactly what that was looking like. I've seen fantastical drawings of what that must have been like. And you know what those are? Fantastical drawings of what that might have looked like. They have no root in... in so, but we know that it was, the, 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 snake was cur- the, the serpent was cursed to crawl on his belly and eat the dust. The point here, though, is Eve was deceived. She was... Snookered. We've looked at this before, but can I just show you one quick passage in Genesis chapter 3? It's so important because it highlights where Eve was deceived in this process. You know the passage well in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Well, it should have been because Satan was embodying it. And he said to the woman, I just love the how, how wonderfully... 
non-dramatic that is. And the serpent was there, and it said to the woman, there is no footnote, hey, did you know that this snake was talking? Isn't that amazing? Moses just says, this is what happened. Ever wondered where Moses got this story? Remember when he was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights? You think he was playing dominoes with God? I think God was saying, let me, let me tell you about when I created Adam and Eve. Very, very specific descriptions. That's how Moses would have gotten all this detail, even though he wasn't there. And the, and the serpent says to the woman, indeed, has God said, that's the first problem of every false teacher questioning God's word, you shall not eat from the tree of the, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, she just talks back. This wasn't alarming to Eve. It's remarkable. From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the true fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, the, 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 the Lord, God, he said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you'll die. The serpent said to the woman, ha, you surely will not die for God, that rascal God. He knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like him, like God, knowing good and evil. Partly true, partly Verse 6, when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it looked delicious. And that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. Not only does it look good and taste good, not only does it smell good, not only does it look like it's something I want to absorb with my taste buds, but this will also get me into God's level. She took from its fruit and ate. Now, this is the part I don't want you to miss. Where in the world was her husband. And she gave also to her husband who was what? With her. And he ate also. When you get to 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says again, the, the woman was deceived. Here's the deal. She was deceived. Adam sinned willfully. Adam made a choice in that moment. Obey God or follow my wife into sin. He made a willful choice. When you get to Romans 5, we'll get there pretty soon. The sin of humanity is traced back to Adam, not Eve. Isn't that interesting? She's the one who sinned first. Really? Did she sin first? Or did Adam sin first by not protecting her and not strangling that snake? It all goes back to the man who is with her. But Eve here is deceived. Don Carson says this. When Eve fell, it was not because she was battered into sinful submission by a wicked overlord, but because she was taken by cunning. Just tricked. That's what Paul has in mind here. We're tricked. How are we tricked? We are tricked from prioritizing Christ when we begin to see that something is more valuable than him. Something satisfies us more than him. Something will be more, more, more uh, pleasing to our relationships than him. That his standards are for later, not now. He's always trying to trick believers into following a self-centered, Christ-distancing faith. He disguises himself. He deceives himself. He distracts us. He distorts. Let me say this. Satan has never missed church one Sunday. You don't think his minions are here right now? They never sleep. They never go to bed. They have millennia of experience 
in the art of placing temptation right in your path. And it's a different temptation for every person. Everyone has a besetting sin that may or may not be what someone else has. He's saying, I know how you sin. I'm going to set your life and put things in your path that are going to make you easily distracted and easily tempted. I say Satan as minions because I doubt that Satan has ever been around me or messed with my life or yours or our church. I think it's his demons and the minions have. You say, why do you think that? Because Satan, get this, Satan is a local entity. They call it in theology. He can only be one place at one time. He's not omnipresent, omniscient. And he's looking at uh, the course of of his working in in the book of Daniel. I think he's working in governmental systems to try to sway massive movements of people. But he has demons who are certainly concerned about us and our ministry here at Mission Road Bible Church and you and your pursuit of holiness. Just don't give Satan any more credit than he's due. He's not omnipresent. He's omniscient. In fact, Satan, remember, the Satan's not the captain of hell. He'll be the chief captive. He is thrown into hell, not given a kingdom called hell. He's not running around with a pitchfork and horns and a red face poking people. He would rather that we think about Christianity as behavior modification, doing better, trying harder, psychological rescue, self-fulfillment, rather than a rescue by a crucified Messiah for sinners who don't deserve his love and death. Paul told the Galatians, Galatians 3, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Christ Jesus was publicly, publicly portrayed and crucified? Who's trying to trick you? Satan's supreme ambition is to prevent Jesus from having supremacy in the human heart. That's what he's out to do. He doesn't want Jesus to have first place in your heart. A third pastoral concern, application of pastoral care or pastoral theology is in the last part of this verse. It's really one to just look at with intensity for a moment. Third is a jealous Christology. We've dealt with ecclesiology in the church, bibliology in the Bible. This is Christology, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, a jealous Christology. I'm afraid, just as Eve was deceived, that your thoughts, your minds will be led astray, distracted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. After that parenthetical illustration of Eve, now Paul finishes the thought about his fear and his jealousy for the Corinthian flock. That last phrase explains the target, the ramifications of his theology, his pastoral care. And it shows us that Jesus Christ, listen, Jesus Christ is to be the integrating centrality of our lives. The integrating centrality, the center point, yes, but that everything relates to and integrates into, toward, from him. Back to that word minds, the thought processes, the thinking. Christianity is fundamentally rational. It's not emotional. God doesn't lead you through whims. God leads you through rational thinking based on the delivery of his word, which is rational. Peter Peter told his readers that everything pertaining to life and godliness is evidenced through the true, what? 
knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. It's mental. It's a thinking man's religion. Luther said, Christianity is not for the stupid. In other words, you have to think about what God has said. He didn't leave us a video. He didn't leave us a soundtrack. He gave us his word. He gave us a piece of literature that describes who he is and what he expects. You can read down through the rest of the passage. Uh, Look at verse 4. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. He's being sarcastic. He's saying, you just let this happen? We were talking about this in our men's conference yesterday. This is what Satan does. He uses our words with his dictionary. Oh, he loves the word gospel. Can I, this is, this is going to be a little hard maybe to even hear. Let me qualify. But I am almost sick of people talking about the gospel without defining it. It's almost like we live in a world where if you say gospel and put a hyphenation on that and put something in there, it sanctifies it. Gospel living, gospel thinking, gospel centered this, gospel centered that. Great. What does that mean? I'm all for that as long as it explains itself. It's not just enough just to rub phrases on things. What does that mean, gospel-centered? It means that when we think that the death and burial and resurrection, the substitutionary atonement of our Savior for our sins matters in this moment, not just because we've labeled it gospel. I'd love to label everything gospel as long as we define it. Let's define it and let it ferret itself out. Led astray, literally corrupted your way to make an erroneous, inaccurate assumption about Christ. From the simplicity, the sincere, single-minded, Ephesians 6, 5 and Colossians 3, 2 use this. The single-minded, singular focus. It's not that we don't think about anything. You ever thought about this? Paul says, For I knew nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's quite a statement, isn't it? You ever wonder what that means? Does that mean that Paul only preached Christ and the crucifixion account? No, that's not what it means. Have you read his epistles? He talks about everything and anything. But what it means is everything and anything he talked about was under the rubric, under the banner, and related to and flowing from the gospel that it all mattered about Christ, within Christ. Think about this. Think about who we're talking about. This is the first generation of believers. J.C. Ryle says this, who would have thought that the very eyes of Christ's own chosen disciples under their ministry under their eyes, while the blood of Calvary was hardly dry. While the age of miracles had not yet passed away, who would have thought that in a day like this that there would be any danger of Christians departing from Christ? And yet that's what Paul's warning about. Listen, that's our temptation as well, is that Jesus becomes peripheral. He becomes sidelight. He's there but not in focus. Jonathan Edwards says, the soul is exceedingly ravished when it first looks on the beauty of Christ. It is never weary of him. 
The illustration I'd like to use is one that doesn't work with the new generation. We need to be a broken record. Those of you who are like 30 years old and younger, we used to have records, albums, LPs, and you put a needle on them, and sometimes they would get scratched, and it would skip. And when it skipped, you would hear this. You got older folks going, oh, yeah, I remember that. Younger folks going, what is a record? When we moved out here, I had some albums, and one of my sons said, those are the biggest CDs I've ever seen, Dad. <laughs> but when it skipped, you would hear the same phrase over and over and over. And it would never, it's just that phrase over and over. Remember that? We should be a broken record. Jesus, Jesus, Christ, Jesus, the gospel, our Savior, undistracted. He is the issue. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself or do you not recognize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Galatians 2, 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 4, 19, my children with whom I am in labor again until Christ is formed in you. Galatians 6.14, may it never be that I would boast except in anything, in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Philippians 1.21, Philippians 3.7, all things are in loss in reference to the surpassing value of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Colossians 1.18, he's the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have... First place in everything, that's first place in our families, in our marriages, in our professions, first place in our missions, our ministry, first place in our matters of intellect, in our entertainment, in our time, in our love, first place in our conversation, first place in our pleasures, our pursuits, our eating, our play, first place in our athletics, in what we watch, in the place of art in our life, in music, first place in our worship, he should be first place in everything. Can we keep going? We proclaim him, Paul said. That's the gospel. We proclaim him, Colossians 1.28. He didn't even say the good news. Our gospel is a person. Colossians 2.8, let no one take you captive rather than being taken according to Christ. Colossians 3.4, Christ who is our life. 1 Peter 2.9. I mean, we could go the rest of the New Testament, couldn't we? Have a, have a fun little exercise. Don't do it right now, please. <laughs> take your New Testament. Go beyond the gospels. It's not fair. Actually, go beyond Acts. That's not fair. From Romans through Revelation, just open your Bible anywhere and start reading and count the number of seconds with a stopwatch, how long it takes you to run into a reference to Christ. You'll be shocked. Maybe have a little alarm that every time you read a reference to Christ when you're reading a book of the New Testament, just, just hit it. You'll be surprised how many beeps, him, to him, from him, for him, him, Christ, Jesus, over and over, Lord. It's just amazing. Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. You go on and on and on. My life verse, John 17, 3, and this is eternal life. You expect Jesus to say living forever, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is knowing Christ and knowing God through knowing 
him and his son. Don't replace Christ with Christology. Don't replace Christ with theology. If our theology makes us happy about what we believe instead of lovers of Jesus is a puffing up knowledge and Paul says it's condemnable. Our knowledge says, what a savior. Let me live for him. Our knowledge doesn't say, look how right we are and pound our chest. How are you and your affections related to the person of Christ being first place? True love for Jesus will always control a human's heart and affections. Listen, if we truly love him, because because we truly know him, our affections, as Edwards called them, our heart and our, our mind, our whole being, our thinking, our feeling, all of who we are, our affections will lend themselves. And he, I love how he says it. They will lean, they'll lean toward Jesus. Jesus will become the object of our focus and love. Our hopes will long for him. Our desire will be for him. Our hate and anger will be for things that anger him. All the powers and aspirations of the human heart will look to him. Our thoughts of him will be our favorite thoughts, are they? Our memories of him will be our most precious. Is communion one of your favorite times in your life? Our consciences will be tuned to his heart. Every sense will be at his disposal. Eyes to see his glory. Ears to hear his word. Tongues to proclaim his excellencies. Feet to serve his mission. And the very process of being aware will be used to worship. The fact that we know that we know means that we know him. Our gifts to be used for him, our talents to be used and displayed for his glory, our income used for his purposes, our resources and possessions are at his disposal. Our relationships are all regulated by our greater love for him. Every second, every moment, every hour, every day, every month, every year, every decade of our lives should be all and only and exclusively at his disposal for his worship. That's why Paul says, I'm afraid that you will be distracted and led astray from him. Satan comes after men and women who love the Lord, typically by distracting them with good things that can easily replace Christ. Doesn't mean we stop doing good things. Doesn't mean we stop pursuing holiness and righteousness, what it does mean is that our love for Christ motivates those things. And we don't try to do these things to please and earn and get, get the favor of Christ, just the opposite. Now, if you're like me, you'd say, thanks, Paul. How in the world do I make that a priority? This, this is so insightful. You're going to be so impressed with me when I tell you this. I'm going to tell you the secret. Just, I should write a book. Ready? You have to read your Bible to get such an amazing and accurate view of Jesus that he becomes wonderful and beautiful and attractive. There is no secret. 
If Christ isn't first place in your life, it's because he's not attractive enough to you. And if he's not attractive enough to you, you haven't looked deeply enough and drunk from this well and said, (laughs) the application of every time you open this Bible ought to be go away singing, hallelujah, what a savior. Why? Because we see us and we see him. And he would save a, say it with me, wretch like me. Let me ask you to bow your heads for a moment. It is possible that you have little understanding of this, and I I get that. I've been there. That's because you don't know the Savior. You know, Christ died for the sins of those who would believe. The call this morning is to believe in him, to believe that he is and was, to believe that he was a man, truly man, and a God, fully God, to believe that he absorbed the wrath of God, the righteous, furious anger of God because of our sin. He absorbed that on the cross by his own death in our place for us and instead of us. And to prove that that was the case, he was dead. How dead? Buried dead for three days and then rose from the grave and offers us eternal hope and life because of his paved way, as Ephesians, excuse me, Hebrews 10 tells us. He inaugurated a way for us. If you believe that, and you've never expressed that to him or to someone, and in a few minutes after our, our service closes, my prayer, the prayer room to my right will be open, and uh, John Rosenbaum will be over there, and we would love to talk to you about your soul. And Look, lunch, we can wait. Don't leave without talking to someone about your need to be protected from God's wrath and your desire to enjoy the greatness of God in Christ. Father, your grace is sufficient. Your grace is merciful. Your mercy is gracious. And we confess that we want to be able to sing and say that all we want, all we have is Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>